Eric Stewart, Andy Mackay, yeah. all hand-picked people. Yeah. When they come in, do they... It's difficult. You're talking mm. to a non-musician. Do they mm. contribute in a real sense, or do you tell them what to do and then they add bits? It's a bit of both, really. Uh, if people just contribute, um, they can sometimes say, well, you know, what do you want me to do? It's your record, it's your song. So I, I find a bit of both is the one. Um, never saying to anyone, this is what you do, and don't you dare go to the left or right of that. That gets them, you know, nobody likes that. But, but by the same argument, I say sometimes, if you don't tell people anything, I've had it where people have told me off for telling them too much, and then I've backed off completely. I said, okay, well, you work it out. For about half an hour, they say, well, come on, produce us, you know, what do you want? Well, you better take that. Mm -hmm. On this particular mix, we've got about 45 different tracks to make. All creating at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are all the, they're all individual sounds? Yeah, they're things that we've added to gradually over the time. So somewhere along here is Paul's voice, your voice. Mm -hmm. Paul's voice on the end here. Vocal. And can we just hear that on, it, on its own? No. <laughs> oh, all right then. Right, now they solo it up. Solo. What's that now? We'll take the solo off. Yeah. Now, now, put the cut. So it loses my voice, see? Right. And then finally you've got pan. And that is for this knob. So that you can solo me. And you can pan it over to the left of the screen. Help them to that's or stereo. Or to the other side. It, it takes you right across. So it's wherever you want to put it in the stereo. You normally put the voice in the middle. There. It just struck me. I, I looked at the Rolling Stone review, which I thought was the most absurd thing I've ever read in my life. Oh. I don't know. You know, you can't, you can't uh, expect good reviews anymore. There was a time when you could sort of bring something out and someone would say, uh, this is quite good. I'm not that keen on this. I think you should do this. But, uh, you know there's something good about it um, but I suppose nowadays that people like the Stones and people who are established like that the first thing that journalists almost got to say is well it, let's get this straight it's rubbish and they're old men and it's old hat but I detect uh, a bit of a change of mood actually because uh, over the years one of the things I thought that was crazy about this thing I mean I think the newspapers were nice for a while I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> it went a long time ago. And then they got really sour. And they were kind of against everything, against the Rod Stewart and me and people who were sort of established. And I think in some cases, I think obviously like it was quite right. There were a lot of cobwebs needed uh, wiping away. I think so. After the 60s, there had been a lot of kind of, you know, cobwebs, I think. So I think some of it was good. Um, a lot of it had to be shocking uh, and had to really be something other than what had gone down. So peace and love did go out the window and it was like war and hate kind of, or you know, you knife yourself for a laugh time. Why do you think that uh, you manage so consistently to uh, maintain a number one position when other people are running up and then running down? Do you have a recipe? Oh, no. <laughs> truth. Uh, I don't know, people have asked that for a lot of years, you know, is how do you do it and stuff, but the, you just don't know how you do it. Uh, I, all I think is that I like doing it. That's the main thing. I, I mean, when I'm coming into a session or something, I look forward to it. I do actually enjoy sitting around hearing violins play or whatever it is. 
or working uh, on this. It's I just enjoy it. I think I'd do it as a hobby if I if I didn't. That's one of the most difficult things I think about doing anything is is standing back and seeing how it is. I suppose if you do a painting, you can do a thing and think, wow, that's it. It's incredible, you know. Or you know, it happens in millions of ways. And the next morning you can look at it and the, draw the curtains and the daylight comes in on it. And, oh God, it's old. You know, and I was a bit, I had a few too many and it looked great last night or whatever, you know. Do you ever get that happen to you? And, uh, oh yeah, I mean, not paintings because I don't really do much painting, but uh, yeah, you know, I can, we can do a track and I can really think it's good and then listen to it the next day and think, hmm, well, you know, we should do that again. That. You see, I can imagine, as you said, I'm putting myself in your position, which is always a dangerous thing to do. If I went out on a limb and I said, that's terrific, on Wednesday night, and I came in on Thursday morning, I might find it hard to admit that I was wrong. In fact, I do, mm. every day, find it hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, that's another way to go. I, I, I think that's all right, too. You know, if you want to bluff it out, that's okay. <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hi, hi, hi. Say, say, say. And welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of of Paul or Nothing, the sweetest little show in town and the one-stop shop to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today it is time for us to set aside differences, put down the muddy rope, quit the back and forth, pushing and pulling, toing and froing, to light a joint, uh, I mean a candle to our love, and play the pipes of motherfucking peace. Yes, guys, we are back with another full-on episode with a turnaround that was quicker than I ever really expected, to be honest. But I have to say, I can feel it. Oh, I can feel it. Today's going to be a good one. And yes, I too am glad that we can actually get back to our roots somewhat and do an actual proper album review on this show. Remember when we actually used to do those for multiple episodes in a row back in the early days? No, me neither. But that is indeed what we're doing on this fabulous day. And it really is about time because... When one starts doing research for Tug of War, then one inevitably starts reading about Pipes of Peace at length as the two projects, their songs, the production is also intertwined and interlinked that not only does it start to confuse the two, but it also makes you feel like you've already covered much of the material. But that is the best part about this episode, though, the fact that I really get to get up on my soapbox and start championing this album as the resounding success that I know it to be. Yes, we've all heard the diatribe that Tug of War was the true return to form for McCartney and that Pipes of Peace was the veritable beginning of the end. But I put it to you folks that such claims are nothing but fake news. Here today, we are going to make Pipes of Peace great again by re-familiarising ourselves with its subtle, mushy genius and placing it in its rightful spot as Macca's, well, I'm not going to say best album of the 80s because that's definitely not going to be true. And I am genuinely worried that Press to Play or Flowers in the Dirt are genuinely going to be better as well, so I'm going to reserve that judgement. But I definitely want you to leave this episode here today with a greater, not only knowledge, but respect and love for Pipes of Peace. 
And whilst there is no scenario where it's ever going to be placed above McCartney 2 in my eyes, the real question of the day is whether this album is indeed automatically worse than Tug of War. It's the real elephant in the room that's been plaguing me throughout the whole writing of this episode. Maybe I just have a thing for the underdogs in these stories. I'm just going to say right now that Paths of Peace might be the most misunderstood album we've ever had on this show. We've spent a lot of time talking about the most underrated Wings albums, you know. Is it London Town? Is it Back to the Egg? Is it even Wildlife? I might actually be leaning more towards Wildlife. And like I say, even though I haven't covered the rest of the 80s, I do feel like this is going to be the hill that I'm most frequently going to be willing to die on. You know, I... I really fuck with Pipes of Peace. I love this album. I've recently just bought it on vinyl. The day I bought it was actually the last time I saw my step-uncle alive as well, so the album has a greater resonance with me through that. At first, I did only ever know it as the album that came after Tug of War, but now, after doing this show for so long and doing the Tug of War episode subsequently as well, I do feel like crossing Tug of War was a real threshold into exploring areas of McCartney that I really didn't know. You know, I'd worked my way up to McCartney 2 and Tug of War, and that was kind of my barrier, my my knowledge point. And everything after that really has been what this show was always meant to be for me, really, which was really exploring McCartney's discography and finding things that I never thought I was going to find and finding some things that I knew I was going to find. And that is Pipes of Peace all over. And also, just before we start, I just wanted to thank you. I, well, you. I just wanted to thank everyone out there, everyone who's downloaded this show and is listening right now, everyone who's following us on the Twitter, everyone who's emailed in, everyone who follows us on our Facebook page as well. Thank you so much for all making this show possible. I know I don't get these episodes out half as often as I like, so you know they probably don't come out nearly as often as you like either, but... I'm always working on new content for this show and fitting it in and around my life as well as squeezing in interviews and trying to organise different schedules and stuff. That's just a nightmare. But yeah, Paul or nothing, we're here, we're back. Like I say, things are resuming as normal and just as normal, we will also be doing the housekeeping just before we actually get onto the meat of the episode. Housekeeping! Yes, this is the part of the show where we do the flogging, the plugging, and the chugging. Ugh, oh god, those words still send shivers down my spine. But yeah, Vietnam-esque flashback over. Let me talk to you about the blog. Yes, check out our oddly successful blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. The blog is basically the testing grounds for this podcast, where episodes that aren't quite ready yet, or episodes that haven't taken on an audio element are free to roam and grow. The blog is a place where all the bonus content for this show can be found, as the articles can offer a, you know, can cover a wide range of topics that I can't quite or yet tackle on the show. They cover everything from Paul's best bass lines, or how I might fix an album like McCartney 2, uh, multi-part uh, Paul McCartney songs, which is a very recent addition, as well as, you know, enough clickbait about Lennon and Linda for you to indulge in. So yeah, if you want to see any more of my Macca content, go and check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod, which is the central hub for the show. Come and fuck with all, all of our polls. I've just been showing off my huge vinyl collection on there recently as well. So if you want to keep up to date with the show or if irritating McCartney gifts are your thing, then go check us out at McCartneyPod. For a more personal and intimate style of contact, though, then of course you can contact me slash the show slash 
No, I'm not actually Paul McCartney, for fuck's sake. At paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Inform me anything and everything about Macca, any gigs you've been to, how you got into the man and his music. Maybe you play an instrument with his music. Maybe you've exchanged even a few words with the man. You've seen him, you've met him. What is your McCartney story? I love to read any and all correspondence you have to send in, especially album reviews as well. You know, obviously, look ahead, folks. Check whatever episode is most recent, look ahead, and hey, I would love to read some album reviews about upcoming stuff that I could actually put in the critical reception segment at the end of these part one episodes. I'd love to do that. So yeah, if you've got any reviews of Press to Play, please send that to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. I've actually quite recently seen how many people actually followed the Facebook group. It's over 500 people, which was actually quite shocking for me, actually. Uh, The Facebook is basically now just going to be like the Twitter. I'm going to be keeping them both up to date equally and trying to be putting unique content on each. Though there'll obviously be a big crossover. Moving on, though, please... Please, please, please leave us a five-star iTunes review on whatever podcasting app you are using. As I've said before, I'm not 100% on the algorithms and how it works exactly, but the better reviews we get and the more reviews we get, the greater it helps the show. It spreads us out, disseminates across the interwebs and gives us more and gives us a greater reach for a greater audience, of course. The show currently, I think, has a four, four four-and-a-half-star average I'm pretty sure an ex gave me a one-star review one time after a bad breakup, but I dare not digress on that. But aside from that, folks, actually, you have been very, very diligent, and you have been going out there and giving me those five-star reviews. There are so many positive compliments. So many of you have said so many nice things about me that it's it's hard for me not to blush like a little schoolboy. So thank you very much for that. But if you haven't already gone out there and done that, then please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are on. And finally, I need to give a shout-out to our Patreon. Yes, yes, another Patreon. I'm sure you know what it is by now, but for those who don't, Patreon is a platform whereby you guys out there are given the chance to help support independent content creators financially. Independent content creators like me, perhaps. If you like the show, if you like what I do, if you think it might be worth something, then help support the show, keep the lights running, and help keep the show forever ad-free. Find all of that and gain early access to episodes and all of that malarkey on patreon.com slash mccartneypod. Also, folks, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on a little idea that I've been ruminating uh, for my other podcast, Down in the Hole, which has been running now. I've probably talked about it a thousand times, but it's back now, my Tom Waits podcast, where me and Tom Quee, who I had on here for my McCartney 2 episode and a couple of other ones, we went to see McCartney last December, which was fucking awesome. But on our show, Down in the Hole, we've actually done a couple of episodes recently. We're going to be recording a couple more this weekend where we listen live to certain albums. And I'm thinking of doing that with McCartney as some quick, regular content, you know, uh, where I sit down with you and we say we listen to McCartney 1 or we listen to a Fireman album and I'll just talk you through it, you know, live. So if you think that might be some content you'd be interested in, also, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or contact me on the Twitter at mccartneypod. Right, moving on to the good stuff. Let's dig in. A quick catch-up. Rather like Peter Jackson when he was talking about how difficult it was to write a good ending for the Two Towers film because no one dies at the end. Well, this episode's got a similar kind of dilemma. Tragic as the death of John Lennon is... It makes for some fascinating content, and there really isn't a whole lot of 
similar drama happening around this particular period, or at least enough to warrant its own section. So what I thought I'd do to change things up a bit is do a little bullet point of some of the minor things happening in McCartney's day-to-day -day life between kind of the 81, 82, 83 period, as well as some of the stuff that we may not have been able to cover on our Tug of War episode because that episode was long enough already. So this is our chance to catch up on our homework. And before we start, let me just preface this by saying that I wouldn't nearly have found as much info as I would have been able to find out about Paul here without uh, Howard Soons's fab and intimate life of Paul McCartney, as well as Barry Miles' book, Many Years From Now. I found quite a few unique details in Philip Norman's kind of highly lambasted Paul McCartney biography, which was very useful as well. And I got a couple of nuggets here that might be of some debate from our resident favourite kook, Mr. Jeffrey Giuliano, from his book Blackbird. Those were all some fantastic books that I checked out there in their own unique ways. We had Howard on the show. We've had Jeffrey Giuliano on the show uh, a while back. Go and check those episodes out. Go and check their books out as well. And just before we start, again, I've just got to point out that during this period, Paul was putting a lot of time and effort into what will become Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is a highly controversial Paul McCartney album and movie that he wrote, yes, wrote, stars in, and of course does all of the music. Uh, I'll be covering it in the appropriate Give My Regards to Broad Street episodes where we're going to be covering the film and the album in tandem as one big bumper pack. I'm not sure if it's going to be two episodes or, or three, we'll have to see. But yeah, we're not going to be covering it today because I want to compartmentalise all of that information into some nice, neat little bows. But yeah, if anything feels sparse here, do remember that Paul is putting a lot of his energy into Broad Street behind the scenes of what's going on here. The first thing I wanted to talk about was the hoi polloi at Richie Ringo Starr's wedding to Barbara back in 81. And whilst this might be a little bit too tabloidy for this podcast, you know, we kind of keep to the hard facts and the important stuff, uh, this wedding just seems to be a train wreck of personal interactions for Paul McCartney that would go on to uh, kind of shape how he would look at himself and his career for the next couple of years, really. Not to get too butterfly effecty, but, you know, you, you can see seeds forming here. Everyone was there, including George and Olivia, Derek Taylor and Neil Aspinall with one glaring missing person. But, despite that, there were high spirits. That is, until Paul started to have a bit of a whinge and a moan after a very fun sing-song session, and after presumably a few sherries. He was bemoaning the release of a memoir that his brother Mike McGear, of Scaffold fame, had just published that was a little too tell-all for the notoriously private Paul. I'm picturing Paul being a little loaded here in this next part, but Paul, upon seeing Derek Taylor, was seemingly reminded of a similar time that Derek did a kind of parallel thing in a revealing radio interview back in the 60s, and McCartney has fixed his eyes upon him and has blurted out rather rudely, Yeah, it is annoying when someone you know so well does something like that to you. 
The someone and the something like that comments were heard loud and clear and did not go over anyone's heads. Paul was still fiercely passionate about loyalty and he obviously felt his brother was testing that in that moment. But it's also clear that Paul still isn't afraid to let people know that he's holding grudges and he isn't afraid to throw his weight about the place and let people <laughs> kind of know who's in charge. Speaking of loyalty though, and this is according to Howard Soon's book Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney, as I just mentioned, it was also the same night that Denny decided he would be announcing that he would be leaving Wings. Talk about stealing the limelight there a bit, Denny. Now, this contrasts directly with what we learnt on our last episode, on our Tug of War episode, whereby Jojo Lane is the one who rings up Paul to let Paul know that Denny is no longer in the band and that she did it on his behalf. So either that is entirely false. Um, again, it's from Jeffrey Giuliano's book, so make of that what you will. Or, you know, both Denny and Paul put on friendly faces for a while now and at Ringo's wedding again... Uh, probably pissed as a newt, Denny saw fit to declare that Wings was officially kaput in a very public statement kind of a way. Maybe th there wasn't anything official. Maybe this is, you know, Denny's doing his own Paul McCartney. You know, they've announced in private that this is probably going to be happening, but Denny is the one that has let everyone know and he's stolen the moment, both from Paul as well as the bride and groom. So now Paul is feeling annoyed by or is annoying in one way or another his family, his past work colleagues and now his current work colleagues all in one night. But it doesn't stop there. Paul found out that John's aunt Mimi was upset that Paul hadn't called her since John's death. Paul was rather bemused by this though as she never seemed to really like him and wasn't really in contact with him when John was alive so without that kind of affection the thought never entered his head but this is also the guy who never went to his own father's funeral to go on the Wings Over America tour so perhaps Aunt Mimi had to you know skew her expectations somewhat. Then, on top of that, Paul seemingly moves to another part of the party, another part of the reception, and he ends up talking to Cavern alumni and British celebrity Scylla Black, which left him rather bewildered, whereby after she asked the ex-Beatle what he actually thought of her new partner, basically went on to call him out for being a bit two-faced, and kept pressing him as to what he really thought. Like... Very interestingly here, Scylla Black, one of his true peers, someone he really came up with, is comfortable enough still, you know, even with Paul being this megastar, with pointing out that he does have a mask. He is always on. He is always in that showbiz mode. Perhaps Paul never really does give his own opinions when out in public because he's always being Paul McCartney, the media guy. Um, so that probably rattled him a bit that night. Then, on top of that, after presumably a few more drinks, Ringo approached Paul in the gentleman's loo slash bathroom, and Paul goes on to say uh, in this quote, Ringo said that there were two times in his life that I had done him in. Then he said he'd done himself in three times. I happened to be spitting something out, and by chance the spit fell on his jacket. I said, there you go, I've done you three times now. We're equal. I left it off. It was affectionate. It wasn't a row. But now, I keep thinking all the time, what are the two times Ringo thinks I put him down? This subsequently leads Paul, uh, who was obviously very affected by this conversation, 
using his Hollywood connections to ring up Beatle writer Hunter Davis, aka the only person to ever release an authorised biography on the Beatles whilst they were actually still together. And Paul calls him up and asks him what he may have done that annoyed Ringo so much. And I can't find any further details as to what this really was. But you can assume that it was probably something to do with perhaps Ringo leaving the Beatles during the White Album sessions. Perhaps something that led Paul to do the drumming for Back in the USSR and Dear Prudence was a comment on Ringo's drumming. Perhaps Paul really did say that he could do it himself and that's what he ended up doing. The second time, perhaps it could have been something along the lines of when Ringo decided to come to Paul's house to negotiate the terms for the McCartney One album in terms of its release against Let It Be and his own sentimental journey. Perhaps things were said during that argument. Perhaps it was stuff during the protracted Let It Be sessions or even just the numerous court cases. Who knows? But what this does do is neatly bring me on to the other major shift in Paul's life. And sadly and rather shockingly for his system, it was going to be a drastic change in his relationship with the media. In the world of 2019, Paul McCartney is this pretty insurmountable figure. He's powerful, influential and has this throng of fans as far as the eye can see. He's on TV, the internet, he cameos in movies, he's releasing books, he's on political marches, everything. And on top of that, he's still releasing relevant music, meaning potentially Paul, in a global sense, is more relevant than ever. But this episode is taking place in the early 80s, and Paul McCartney was not yet the master media mogul, so it makes sense that he would have some initial stumbles with the public. The first of these we actually discussed last episode, being of course Paul's infamous It's a drag comment, which was his reply when being asked about Lennon's assassination. You know, everyone thought it was glib, everyone got really angry. You know, we, all, we already know this. And whilst the obvious repercussions could be seen by anyone at that time and now, what no one could have predicted was how far this bitterness would run within a certain percentage of the population. It should be noted that around this time, uh, Philip Norman's infamously pro-Lenin biography of the Beatles, titled Shout, was also released. And whilst I'm yet to read this particular source firsthand, I've spoken to a few who have, and its reputation as a book that puts down McCartney and puts Lennon on a Christ-like pedestal is seemingly well-earned. So now, for every member of the public that was now deifying Lennon, there was seemingly also another member of the public who was turning further against Paul. And whilst this may just be a natural reaction to people dealing with the death of Lennon, you can feel for Paul here, who A, is still feeling a greater and truer loss than any member of the public could have, and B, is also having to constantly deal with the fact that Lennon himself was no angel, and things were genuinely not perfect when he was taken away. You know, just imagine being bombarded with propaganda as to how great Lennon was and how rubbish you were at this particular time of your life when you've lost your best friend and your career is very uncertain. You know, 
I'm sure Paul, at points like this, must have been having flashbacks to his post-Beatles breakup depression where he got hairy and drank loads of alcohol. Thankfully, that didn't happen here, and Pipes of Peace would actually go on to yield two transcontinental number ones for McCartney, but... All of this has the air of introducing the notorious 80s slump that everyone's always been talking about and warning me about. And the McCartney brand is going to wane here now, folks. Uh, Not just that, but the Beatle brand. Because a short while after the death of Lennon, things began to return to where it more or less was at the end of the 70s, which was a place of oversaturation and general lack of interest. So... Anything McCartney does here is going to come under greater scrutiny, not only because of a greater pressure of his musical direction being the surviving member of the McCartney-Lennon duo, but also the fact that anything he puts out now, even if it's just, you know, a minor project, is going to be compared always to things like Imagine, whether he wants it to or not. And this overall negativity towards Paul and the fact that he wasn't currently in the Beatles and being fully backed by that impenetrable Beatle media armour, a further slew of kind of salacious tabloid headlines began to pile up on the McCartney kitchen table. The next one being an issue surrounding his late father's widower, one Angie Williams. I was nearly forced there to call her by her current name, which is Angie McCartney, Because outside of Howard Soon's book, I actually couldn't find her fucking maiden name on the internet anywhere. Almost like she has personally ensured that any trace of it has been scrubbed from history so that she may exploit uh, or use her prestige surname for her own benefit. So yeah... Uh, Having just mentioned that Paul never actually went to his own father's funeral, you can imagine that his relationship with this particular woman would be less than stellar. And since it would be impossible for a squabble between Paul and this woman to be a romantic one, logically, it has to be about money. And both sides were stoutly resilient in stating their respective claims. Uh, Ange, from her perspective, had been supposedly promised by Jim McCartney, her husband, who was 27 years her senior, that after years of looking after him, she in turn would be looked after for the rest of her life after he had died. You know, Paul's got money coming out of his ears. I'm sure he could give her a little package. Well, it's clear that just like mob wife Angie Bompensero in The Sopranos, she was not ever going to receive that package. And so, without the financial support of Jim through Paul, she instead took to becoming a talent agent to make ends meet. Now, having the name McCartney is a pretty big boon in the talent industry, I am sure. But even so, she still went into debt and ended up writing to Paul in an effort to reach out and secure some financial assistance. Now, she had been receiving a very minor... Uh, amount of pocket money, like £20 a week or something. But if she's reaching out to Paul McCartney, you can assume she's going to be asking for a lot more, especially if she is in debt. Though, from Paul's point of view, from his perspective, it was only ever about money. She only ever married his father for the money in the first place, and now since his death, uh, he doesn't want anything to do with her. Especially since she so routinely tries to profit off the McCartney name. 
including one time where she directly tried to get him involved in a charity concert that she herself was promoting. This, of course, angered Paul greatly. He's a very private man, as we all know. But what tipped him over, over the edge, however, was the incident where Ange actually went ahead and sold his fucking birth certificate for an undisclosed amount. So after this, even that paltry pocket money she was getting from the McCartney estate dried up and Paul completely washed his hands of her. The birth certificate, funnily enough, went on to fetch for $18,000 at auction in the 90s for an undisclosed buyer and Ange went on to sell her story to the papers who ate it up hook, line and sinker. And whilst McCartney's name was smeared in several newspapers in both the UK and the US, he was particularly lambasted in an article in the much reviled Sun newspaper over here in the UK. The article was titled The Mean Side of Paul McCartney. And it was just everything from Andrew's perspective demonising Paul. Not to say that a lot of it isn't true, a lot of it could be a case of perspective, and some of it could be down to my own bias towards Paul, but I am leaning towards his side of the story on this one. Ironically, the Sun newspaper is now no longer available in Paul's hometown of Liverpool, though, following its disgustingly evil coverage of the Hillsborough football disaster. In other negative news, or should I say pre-Beatle news, the original and only vinyl copy of the Quarrymans That'll Be The Day slash In Spite Of All The Danger had finally surfaced and, as it turns out, due to the band's agreement back in the day of sharing the disc on a weekly rotor basis, it was now in the hands of ex-Quarryman pianist John Duff Lowe. Did Lowe forget to pass it on? Did he hold on to it because he knew it was going to be something special one day? Who knows? Lowe himself was firmly in the camp of possession being nine-tenths of the law, and in order to prevent the item being put up for auction, McCartney had his lawyers threaten Lowe with legal action. Nice one there, Paul. So, after much private bargaining, charming, threatening and bribing, Paul managed to walk away with the much-esteemed Beatle relic. When the papers questioned McCartney and criticised him for not paying Lowe more for the disc and, you know, spreading that seemingly infinite wealth with everyone, McCartney himself commented that Lowe really had no right to the disc anyway and really had just given it up for free. That was a sentiment that was not shared by the media. But it is pretty unfair to assume that Paul is wealthy enough to fill the coffers of everyone with a loose tangential connection to the Beatles, but also in Paul's lofty high tower where he is infinitely wealthy, he might be unappreciative of how important it is for maybe someone like John Duff who doesn't have millions of quid to, say, receive a nice little injection of 50k or something like that, you know? But... In order to sum up McCartney's attitude towards this situation, I thought I'd include a quick paragraph from Philip Norman's Paul McCartney, The Biography. I think it really sums him up. During their phone conversation, Paul had suggested that Lowe should come to London after the business side was concluded and they'd have a nostalgic night out together. About a week later, he rang P. Marsh again on the number that he'd been given, but it had been disconnected. Carrying on with Paul's woes, during the April-May period of 1982, the memoirs of Jojo Lane were released. The late Jojo Lane being the former partner, wife, girlfriend, groupie, slash dealer to Denny Lane and was more of a regular wings face than 
most of the actual musicians. And for those of you who can remember our infamous interview with the lovely Jeffrey Giuliano a while back, where he claims to have been breastfed by Jojo Lane, you may remember that Jojo was one of the least reliable sources ever. The memoirs really incensed Paul, as of course they were going to. They were a lurid tell-all tale. Though, whilst the rumour was always that Paul was supposedly uh, after her, and that she was after Paul from day one and only using Denny, blah blah blah, McCartney himself was not included in her long list of self-confessed sexual conquests. But that didn't stop Jojo from calling Paul a pussy-whipped, housebound, have-a-go farmer who is constantly stoned to the gills. Yeah, no such thing as bad publicity, is there? And the last of all Paul's media maladies of this time brings us back to one of our Paul is Dead episodes, one of our three Paul is Dead episodes, but it's also worth mentioning here. Uh, it was actually around this time that the rumours of Paul's illegitimate German-born love child reared their ugly heads, though this time it was not the mother, but the child that had come forth to, you know, stake their claim to the McCartney fortune, plant their flag in the ground. Her name was Bettina Krishbind, born 19th of December 1962, uh, and was the daughter of one of McCartney's long-term girlfriends in Hamburg, Germany. Her mother was Ulrike Wollers, and it's pretty categorical that her relationship with Paul was fact. And during the old nine-month shuffle calculations, the math makes perfect sense that McCartney may have indeed been a candidate for the father. You know, he may have indeed made the beast with two backs with Miss Wollers whilst the Beatles were in Hamburg doing their residency. Bringing things back to the present, though, and by present I mean 1983, Bettina emerges from the fog once again to make her case that she was indeed the daughter of the most famous singer-songwriter of all time. I mean, I would certainly want to be Paul McCartney's grandson and have him tuffle my hair and give me a Hofner. And maybe if someone had been telling me since I was a kid that I was Paul McCartney's daughter and drilling it in, then yeah, maybe I too would be convinced of such lineage. And so, in 83-84, Bettina began putting forward another paternity suit against the McCartney estate to prove that they were related. And only after Paul had to do a fucking blood test would it all come to an end. The courts came to rule, all in all, that whilst Paul was indeed in a relationship with the mother at the time, the blood tests could not prove any evidence that he was related to Bettina or was indeed her father. Which, in legal language, is pretty fucking harsh, because it's, it's them basically saying, sorry Bettina, but your mom was shagging around behind Paul McCartney's back, and she's been lying to you in order to claim parentage to the richer suitor. Damn, some cold-ass legality right there. In 2007, Bettina would go on to claim that the blood that Paul had given in the test was not from the real Paul McCartney, and it went on to become evidence in, in that Paul is dead phenomena, the idea that the real Paul got Bettina's mother pregnant, and that the man who replaced Paul had different DNA, and he would have had to have had the blood test, and it proved that they weren't the same person. Or just that Miss Vuller had sex with a different guy with different blood to Paul McCartney, and that's who the father is. Yeah utter bollocks, want to stay away from Paul is dead for as long as possible. Yeah, moving on. Though I do think that's about all we have in terms of salacious and filthy rumour-milled gossip in the McCartney world 
in the McCartney world sphere for this episode. And now I think it's best that we round out this little catch-up segment with some of the more positive things that Paul was doing around this time. Macca had already been an ardent vegetarian by 1975, but his healthy lifestyle in 83 would continue to expand as he would now officially stop smoking cigarettes. And rather serendipitously at time of recording, this is the time where the Beatles 50th Super Deluxe Anniversary Edition of Abbey Road has been released, where Paul is indeed holding a cigarette on the front cover of that 1969 album. (gasps) Shock horror, what a bad influence there, Paul. And whilst I'm glad that Paul is making a positive health choice in his life, a health choice that has, you know, retrospectively been the correct one, he's still here with us now. But don't panic, this doesn't mean he's going to stop smoking copious amounts of weed or anything. Perhaps, you know, he still has tobacco in a blunt every now and then. I doubt it. But at least he stops specifically smoking cigarettes. Though, if you listen to Happy With You from his most recent Egypt Station album, you may know that uh, his ability to go full cold turkey and stick to it uh, initially may have varying validity. This is also the time where Paul was looking to get into all sorts of creative exploits. And whilst we are, of course, going to be ignoring the writing and production of Give My Regards to Broad Street in this episode, it was not his only new interest. Everyone who listens to this podcast probably knows that McCartney is an artist, a a fantastic painter, a very prolific painter. And if you follow the Twitter, you will definitely know this. I've been posting a lot of that recently. And it was around this point that... Paul's painting really started picking up in its frequency and he started to take himself more seriously as a painter. In all fairness, the artwork that McCartney has publicly displayed is only really from 1989, 1990 onwards-ish from what I can find. But it is here where it all begins. Perhaps specifically when he had found that a house he had rented in Long Island had no paintings whatsoever on the walls. And so to combat this, he decided to cover the bare walls in every room of the house with his own paintings. And finally, it was also around this time that Linda was, for the first time, getting some recognition for her photography outside of the US. This statement was actually quite shocking for me at first because... Linda and the photography that she created was so ubiquitous in the Beatles' visual narrative and her work is so evocative and it is beautiful and she was an obvious talent, like that is where her strengths lay. She wasn't a keyboardist and it's such a shame that, you know, she's known as the joke and that's the meme that seems to always be proliferated. But no, Linda was a very serious and prolific artist in her own right. And her exhibitions around this period drew crowds wherever they went, regardless of the Beatle connection. And the accompanying book, simply titled Photographs, is, by all accounts, one of the best key visual guides to the 1960s rock and roll scene. Um, the best plaudit for this work specifically came from the great French photographer Jacques-Henri Latigue when he asked for one of her photos for his office without knowing who she was. Right, that list of positive stuff was a lot longer in my head when planning the layout of this episode. But moving on from all of that McCartney gossip and drama that was going on in his everyday day-to-day life, let's get back to the music and let's go to an event in his life that I'm sure will not go wrong in any way, shape or form. McCartney and Jackson... 
But it just does interest yeah. me how you make contact. I mean, you, you sit down with Michael Jackson, you've never yeah. met the guy before. Uh -huh. And what actually happens? What's the process? Well, I mean, it, to me, it's like anyone with anyone. I just start talking to him and saying, um, you know, just asking him about his life, telling him about mine. Um, sit down and sort of just, I don't know, you just add a little bit, you know, just start talking about stuff. Um, I can't think of any specific thing you do, you know, you don't, right, sit down there, Michael, now we're going to communicate. <laughs> Look at this now, son. <laughs> you know, it's not going to... I just get out a guitar and we just sit around, you know, I think we know we're both not going to really say much. But it's not so much about talking, actually. It's about letting ideas come to you. I mean, he's one of the most laid-back, rela most relaxed people you'll ever meet. But the thing is, interviews do make him uncomfortable. Mm. You know, I sort of said to him, um, why don't you do interviews, mate? He said, I, I don't feel comfortable. How do you, how's that for a Michael Jackson impression? Very good. <laughs> no, but he, he's... Um, and I, I can go for that. I mean, I know exactly what he means. I've done it all these years. And you do them. They're not that bad to do. But he's very shy of doing them. And I know what he's talking about. I mean, I'm just... Maybe I don't I know. I bluff it out a bit more. So, all right, well, let's do it. You know, go and do it. And I don't really find him that bad. It's funny, actually, when we were doing the video for Say, Say, Say... Um, we were in California and a lot of school kids came around and Michael's fella said, do you mind meeting all these school kids? You know, Michael would like to and all that. And I said, no, I don't mind. I'm happy to. You know, it's just a bunch of kids. So uh, I'm, I'm walking out there and we're going down the line. You feel like the president or somebody will <laughs> vote for me and not him. You know, and we both of us going down this line and everybody said, well, I'm so pleased to meet you and all this stuff. And halfway through it in the London... Uh, vernacular, Michael bottles out. He says, oh, I really can't do this, you know, I really hate this. I mean, he says, it's all right, you know. Anyway, I don't want to kind of go gossiping about him too much, but it is, he finds that kind of thing a bit difficult, so I think he gets the reputation of being tense. On our last episode, we spoke about the collaboration between Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney, and that there was a part of me that kind of felt like Stevie should have got his own unique segment within the show outside of the tug-of-war sessions, there really isn't much noteworthy interaction between the two of them. At least, that's been made public. However, the same can't quite be said for Paul's next major musical collaboration. Yes, we are finally able to talk about Macca's working and personal relationship with The King of Pop, a title which surely burned Paul whenever he heard it. And whilst I could have indulged my natural urges and expanded this content out even further and made it into a Pipes of Peace bonus episode, A, I already have that episode lined up, and B, I really needed to pad out the runtime of Pipes of Peace Part 1. You know, I've written myself into a corner, and doing the mature thing and changing the format is the last thing on my mind. Now, just like on our last episode with Lennon's murder, I know you're all probably dying for me to get to the filthier, more disturbing, bitchy aspects of this story. But of course, as is the way to go with things on this show, we do have to establish at least a few facts before we start doing the old he said, she said routine. So, who is Michael Jackson? Okay, maybe that's the most ridiculous question ever put forward by a podcaster ever, but nearly 10 years on and the ceaseless deluge of wacko jacko headlines are now slowly starting to become a thing of the past. Yes, there was that new jacko documentary very, very recently and they sometimes get poor R&B artists to help re-release some crappy lost demo tracks. But regardless of all the controversies and 
all of the upset that's been surrounding Jackson recently, his musical legacy is going to be afforded the same type of prestige that the Beatles and Paul have been enjoying their whole careers for obvious reasons. And with the prospect of a man being as famous as all four Beatles, possibly more so, possibly with even more talent and a, a, a more rabid hold on society, the question, who is Michael Jackson, may not be so ridiculous after all. Michael Joseph Jackson was born August 29th, 1958, and died June 25th, 2009, and was one of the most talked about, viewed and listened to influential figures of the past 50 years. You may have heard of him. He started off at the tender age of about eight or nine, and he made his entertainment debut with all of his brothers by rounding out the true lineup of the Jackson Five. Then, soon after, Michael quickly began to rise to prominence within the group, firstly for his voice, but also for his baby face, which morphed into boyish good looks. His first solo album was released when he was only 13, and pretty much from then on, it was success after success after success followed swiftly by the end of the reign of the Jackson 5 and Jackson pretty much went off uncontested by any of his siblings. By the time Jackson meets Paul he already has the super successful Off The Wall album out as part of his adult oeuvre but shortly after said Macca meeting Jackson would go on to release a little album called Thriller which, depending on what source you read, is either the most successful, second most successful, or third most successful Heinz selling album of all time. Yeah, the Beatles may have had a streak of hit albums, but when Michael burned brightest, he really gave the Fab Four a run for their money. And, as I'm sure many of you know, he didn't burn too bright for too long. And after the successes that were the bad and dangerous albums, there was a notable period of fuck all from Mr. Jackson until his death. Now there are only just scraps of songs, remixes and painful collaborations that the Jackson estate put out every other year to line their coffers. Yes, Jackson is another one of those artists who was seemingly made more money after he's died than he ever did when he was alive. He's Michael Jackson. And the idea that he, the King of Pop, collaborated with Paul at this period is the perfect injection of something interesting into this story, whereas, you know, the, the second act could have been lagging a bit somewhat. So why Michael Jackson? Well, this union of recording artists may not be as odd as one may assume. For both of them, especially around this time, were in similar places, on, on, you know, on kind of different sides of the coin. As Howard Soon's put in his book, both Jacka and Macca were at their own career heights on the cusp of 1982. Jackson, too, had recently split off from a band and released a successful solo number one album. And guess what? Paul, too, had just broken up from a band and had released a successful number one album. On top of that, they were both using their own classic producers from their old days, though Paul's producer would be from two bands ago rather than one band ago. But yeah, they had huge fan bases that was transcontinental and seemingly the only differences between them musically would have been really trivial things like their age as Macca was a full 15 years Jackson senior. For those of you who remember all the way back to our London Town episode with our friend of the show Maurice Bozitsky you will remember that Jackson and McCartney already crossed paths somewhat before. 
Quincy Jones, the George Martin to Jackson's Paul, could tell instantly that the Wings tune Girlfriend would be the perfect tune to suit Jackson's voice and so went the biggest cover of any Wings material till Guns N' Roses approached Live and Let Die many years later. And whilst I do prefer McCartney's version of course, Quincy's selection of Girlfriend from this album to do as a cover did at least ensure that someone actually bought the London Town album. The Jackson version of Girlfriend was recorded at the time when Michael was still marketed as this uh, cute burgeoning boy man rather than a full-on sex symbol that he would go on to be. And so therefore, as hard as it is to believe, that cover is actually more soppy and sappy than the Macca original. I oh, know, right? Normally, on this part of the show, there are these great interwoven narratives with twists and coincidences, but as Macca details here in Paul Denoyer's book, Conversations with McCartney, the actual way they came to working together was delightfully mundane and straightforward. Michael rang up and said he wanted to work together, so I said, what do you mean? He said, I want to make some hits, you know. I said, sounds good. So we came over. So we sat upstairs in my office in London. I grabbed a guitar and Say 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 came out. He helps out a lot with the words. But it's not a very wordy song, but it's fun working with him because he's so enthusiastic. These sessions produced three songs, Say Say Say, This Is The Man and The Dog Gone Girl Is Mine with the first two going to Paul for Pipes of Peace and the last track going to Jackson where it would appear on that little album we mentioned earlier called Thriller. It was clear though that these hits were the modus operandi in mind and there was little effort to write anything that took longer than a tea break to compose. These are pop songs, these are shameless radio friendly tracks. They were not trying to get together and write something on the level of Dear Friend or Here Today or anything like that. Whilst working on The Girl Is Mine, Macca would once again feel the familiar sting of working with an equally powerful hitmaker. And no, I ain't talking about no wacko jacko either. Unlike his collaboration with the little Stevie Wonder, Quincy Jones was the producer, head honcho and decision maker. There was no George Martin there, whatsoever. Yes, Tug of War and Pubs of Peace probably in the production elements after these initial session recordings would have you know, done a bit of tweaking and stuff, but the finalised versions of these songs are curated and moulded by the great Quincy Jones. This meant that Macca was now in foreign waters and would have to put on a good performance for everyone involved. Though it was not without certain tensions, for example, McCartney was a bit unsure about the phrase the doggone girl is mine, as well as the spoken middle section where he and Michael have terribly poorly aged banter. Um, it's, it, it, it's terrible, can't talk about that. He felt it was a little too Barry White, and every single quote I've found about this has Paul McCartney doing some sort of Barry White impression, and I would love to hear Paul do that in real life as well. And sadly, Paul eventually relented on this point. He was being a good little boy. He didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And this led to one of the most cringe-worthy bits of his entire career. Let's hear it. Michael, we're not going to fight about this, okay? Paul, I think I told you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. 
heard it all before, Michael. She told me that I'm her forever lover, you know. Don't you remember? Well, after loving me, she said she couldn't love another. That what she said? She said it. You keep dreaming. I don't believe Oddly enough, though, even though the fact that the two of them had worked on Macca's numbers first, it would be Michael Jackson who would be releasing his song out to the public initially, with The Girl Is Mine hitting shelves in late October 1982. This was down to the fact that Quincy could turn out a hit in a weekend, and Paul decided to take a further year or so to tinker with Say 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 and its mother album Pipes of Peace. As a chap who spent oh so long writing and talking about how excited McCartney was to work with other artists for Tug of War, I must admit I was quite at a shock to see that it was actually Jackson himself who instigated this affair. Was he put up to it by Quincy Jones? Was he his father, Joe? Maybe Michael was ahead of the curve and knew Paul was a great business move for the future, or maybe he did just in fact want to make some hits. But what it does show is a rather strange mercurial part of Paul McCartney's career. Because now we've had the success of Tug of War plus his own prestige. And we're just in this weird little part of the early 80s where McCartney's career, if you were to ask a fortune teller, seemingly is really on the up and up. And now, whereas McCartney with Tug of War was looking to collaborate with others, the talent is now coming to him. Though, if we go back to the quote from earlier, it does give us a peek behind the curtain to reveal that, perhaps, at least in Paul's eyes, the collaboration between him and Jacko was not on the same level with the same kind of to-and-fro writing eye-to-eye -eye as previous partners. He said, Again, nothing like working with John. At that stage with Michael, you weren't even talking about a writer, more of just a vocalist and a dancer. But he said, let's make a couple of hits, and that's exactly what we did. Yes, okay, okay. At least at this pre-thriller, pre-bad level of fame for Michael, Paul simply didn't get that collaborative itch scratched in the same way that he liked. And I guess Michael Jackson creates albums in different ways as well. Like I've seen documentary footage where he will just craft a whole song just based on the skip just his vocals and stuff, and they'll build a song out of that. Paul's definitely not doing that at all. What the collaboration does do, though, is offer something exclusive and cool for the album to drive sales and, you know, give a bit of that cross-market reach, appealing to both Paul's fans and Jackson's, which spans so many ages and demographics. And I'm just so glad it exists outside of, you know, the fantastic business move it would have been for them. I do, en I do enjoy the music, even though some of it is better than the rest. And one can never diminish the fact that Paul McCartney, due to this random collaboration with a young Michael Jackson, now appears on another, if not the greatest selling album of all time. So, even if Michael Jackson has usurped Paul McCartney and the Beatles in some way, he seemingly wouldn't have been able to do it without Paul. So it's a nice nodding of the cap and a passing of the torch, even if Paul may not have seen it that way. Maybe if Paul himself had been a younger man, a more inexperienced chap, then maybe there would have been more of a match, or if Jackson had been a bit older and experienced. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jackson just didn't do it for Paul. He liked the songs, he liked the sessions, and I'm sure, and I am sure he liked the money that Say 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 going to number two got him. When you look at the glut of photographs taken of the two around this time, it was clear that Paul and Jackson were very close and a naturally very chummy fair. And 
and a naturally very chummy pair, as evidenced by Jacko donning a Wings cancelled 1980 Japan tour jacket, which, as far as this podcaster goes, is about as fan pandering as you can get. Like, that is such a relic lost to history. So few people will know the implications and the significance of Michael Jackson in 1981, 1982, wearing the jacket of the cancelled 1980 Wings over Japan jacket. That's so cool. Yeah, they were probably staged, but Linda's the photographer. So it's not like there's a full camera crew or anything, and it, it does feel slightly like a bit of a slice of life between them, and the shot of Paul and Michael over the sink doing the old I wash you dry routine is drenched in that wonderfully warmed, nostalgic cheddar cheese. Upon Jackson's death in 2009, Paul either had his media hat ready to go or was genuinely able to let bygones be bygones now that the King of Pop had shuffled off this mortal coil. He said, It's so sad and shocking. I feel privileged to have hung out and worked with Michael. He was a massively talented boy man with a gentle soul. His music will always be remembered forever, and my memories of our time together will be happy ones. The Great Beatles Songwriting Swindle When we first came down from Liverpool, we didn't think songs could be owned, me and John. We just thought they were in the sky. Just people just listened to them, you know? Well, pretty soon you had to get to know they could be owned because <clears throat> someone else knew they weren't in the sky. And he owned them. So that's what happened to us on the Northern Songs thing, which was me and John. Very early on, we, we got managed very well into a little situation. So it meant that the lion's share of whatever songs we did were taken by someone else. Um, actually, one guy we never even met. We've always been trying to sort of get control of them, really. So I suppose the thing about, the only difference is that now, I suppose Michael knew I was trying to sort of get control of him, and I kind of thought he was joking. I, I used to work with him, and, and I, he'd say, I'm going to get your records, you know. I'm going to get, no, he's going, I'm going to get your songs. I'm going to buy your songs. And I'd say, <laughs> love it. You know, I thought it was a joke. Anyway, he ended up doing that. So, I mean, I can't sort of blame him. You know, they're, they're on the market. In our case, the trouble is, like the Nike thing that came up. I don't know if you heard about that. But um, the trouble is that we never did do commercials with the Beatles. We had lots of big offers from soft drinks companies, you know, to do stuff, obviously. But we always thought, now it kind of spoils it just takes that little edge off it that people, people who like Beatles stuff kind of go, nowhere, man, mm. and revolution. They kind of feel something for it, you know? And that was what we tried to do. That's what we were all about, was trying to resist all those commercial offers. Now, if, you know, somebody else wanted to do it, then fine, it's fine. But that's what's happening now, is our songs are tending to get a little bit commercialized now, which I don't, I'm not too wild on, because it kind of spoils them a little bit for me. I think the, 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 the common theme is the love of music, love of the thrill of actually doing that thing. It's like if you like painting, splodging paint on is a thrill. For me, splodging music on a piece of paper or onto a record is a great thrill. Having dealt with the far more rose-tinted good times of Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, it's now time that we indulged ourselves in the ensuing bitter feud between these two titans of the music industry. Bitter feud, you say, Sam? Well, yes. 
After the success that was the three songs the two of them recorded together, the cold, heartless world of business swiftly drove the two apart. Yes, we're going to talk about what I like to call the great Beatles songwriting swindle, because this story really does sound like something you would hear about on Wall Street or in some social network startup company, because we're going to see a side of these artists that their art forms rarely afford, which is their formidably cunty business personas. And for those of you who don't know, what this whole segment is going to be about is, famously, Michael Jackson owned all the rights to the Beatles' music for the longest of time. It was a great controversy, and it's still kind of unresolved to this day. There are always headlines every now and then about who owns the rights to Beatles' music, when rights will end, when copyright's going to end, and so forth. And rather serendipitously, it all begins around the time of Pipes of Peace. The other great meme in this story is how Michael Jackson supposedly turns to Paul as Paul is giving him the advice about the music publishing industry and how to make money out of music. And he says to Paul, you know, Paul, I'm going to get your songs one day. And Paul always talks about how, like, he thought Jackson was just joking and how one day that actually did come true. And whilst I suppose I should be as... Uh, neutral as possible on Jackson's motivations here. It's hard not to paint him in any sort of bad light these days. Though I am glad we get to talk about this, not only because the episode needs padding, but because this is one of my favourite parts of the Paul McCartney story. Not even that, but of the whole Beatle narrative. I think that maybe as a content creator, I am drawn to this story because of the inherent drama that comes from a conflict like this. And yeah, You really are right there. It's been a while indeed since the days of the Lennon-McCartney feud. And now that McCartney has lost his former rival, he was free and available for a new one. You really couldn't make this shit up. And that's the best part. It's so fantastical, almost like Godzilla vs King Kong or Batman v Superman. In brief, the story goes that Jackson, whilst he was over at McCartney's for the weekend, or three days, I think McCartney describes... He was somewhat joshingly, somewhat seriously, asking Paul for some genuine business advice. It made sense. They were both big names, but Jackson had a longer road ahead of him, and it would be smart to seek out the counsel of one of the only other people on earth who experienced that kind of level of fame and success and acclaim at a young age. And, you know, credit where credit's due. Jacko's not an idiot. He knows that Paul is the guy to go to. If he wants this kind of information, Macca was the man who historically came out on top of the whole Beatle breakup thing. He has his fingers in all sorts of pies and, in essence, was a business. So, what advice did Macca impart upon this young, impressionable mind? Well, it turns out that Paul informed Michael that a great way to make some money in this business was to get into the music publishing industry. What is music publishing? Well, it's a music publisher's job to ensure that if anyone plays their song commercially, or if you know another artist or filmmaker uses a song in one of their own projects, then the artist would get their cut. Well, not, not the artist exactly. It would go to the person who owns the publishing rights to the song. So, for example, Paul with his music and his songs, will always get a certain cut of the treasure because, first and foremost, he is the songwriter. 
he is credited with writing the song, and so therefore he has certain rights to and over it as a work of art. However, the person who owns the publishing rights has the right to disseminate and license that material to willing buyers, however they see fit, whether it's appropriate or not, whether it suits the song or not, they can make money off giving the song to other people for other projects. The buyers don't get to keep the song, but they can use it on whatever they're working on. So every time you use any, anyone's song in a film, you have to sign a publishing contract between you and the license holder. The cost of the contract can vary from artist to artist, but if you've ever bought a brand new Beatles album, then I guess you know you can assume that the licensing of a Beatles song in a TV show or film is going to be very expensive indeed. Actually, in spite of all the obvious financial benefits, the Beatles famously detested licensing their songs to adverts, commercials, TV and film. There were a couple of minor examples here and there, but whilst they were still together, their stuff rarely got played anywhere else other than their products until their breakup in 1970. Rather famously, the super slick, super cool, super sexy AMC 60s period show Mad Men paid $250,000 to license Tomorrow Never Knows from Revolver for one of their episodes where the main character takes some LSD. I haven't dived into that show just yet, but that episode I did watch. I did just you know quickly dip into that out of context. And the use of that song was pretty phenomenal. So I kind of think it was worth it for 250 k even if that did mean they, they were probably taking it from things like Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead and those shows inevitably suffered because of that. But the Beatles are so worth it, aren't they? I wonder how much Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle had to pay to use Hey Jude for the first time as the closing song for yesterday. That must have cost them a pretty penny, unless the studio was working particularly close with Apple with some behind-the-scenes deals and the, the song was a bit of a gimme with the whole thing. Who knows? But yeah, the point is 250k. And all that bank goes back to someone. That someone being the person who owns the rights to that song. And it was as simple as that when McCartney explained it to the young Jackson. When McCartney was later detailing the events, he makes it sound very blatant as to how much he probably led Jackson down this route. When he quotes himself as saying... I own this song, and whenever someone uses it for anything, I get paid. But, Paul, that's because you own the rights to that song. Say if someone else bought the rights to that song, you would still get paid some money as the songwriter, but you would lose control over what projects the song may or may not be licensed for. And, after extensive periods of time, copyright comes to pass. It fades away. It expires. Sometimes it's every five years. Sometimes it's every ten years, twenty-five years. Sometimes a hundred years. You know, Mickey Mouse's one was famously re-extended even when that expired. But, typically, unless you want a song just to fall into the public domain, you will buy the songwriter. You will buy a new copyright and start it afresh so that you can keep making money off something popular. Well, the Beatles songs are a commodity just like anything else in this world, and due to some previous dealings in the 60s, it came to pass that the Beatles song rights were now open to the public for anyone to buy. Anyone, anyone with the money, would technically be able to come in and buy the Beatles songs off them. Now, the assumption, obviously, is that the Beatles are all themselves so rich that they would just be able to buy their own catalogues back and make the money back in seconds. 
Well, again, like I've said multiple times in this episode already, things are never that simple. And that is the other element that I do find so interesting in this story, is that Jackson was able to outbid McCartney at all. But it seems that fate was working in Jackson's favour. Remember, Jackson didn't exactly steal the song rights during the Pipes of Peace sessions when McCartney wasn't looking or anything. It was going to be a year or two down the line when the, these legal proceedings would actually come to fruition, but those seeds were planted. McCartney had incepted the idea of song rights and buying song rights with vast sums of wealth to a young Jackson, and during the interim, the young Jackson had netted himself a solid $100 million in his own personal finances. This is a level of fuck you money that was unprecedented at the time, and the idea of McCartney being this billionaire that we all know him as today was still a Pipes of Peace dream. So it makes sense that as McCartney's fame was beginning to wane somewhat, that Wacko Jacker was able to strike when the iron was hot in the way that he did. There was an opportunity. He seized it. Someone was going to. It just happened in this case to be Michael Jackson. And it just so happened that in this case, he happened to be a guy who was advised by Macca to do this exact thing like is it, it it's a poetic injustice maybe i don't know i guess the benefit of being a solo act as opposed to being a beetle is that you are one guy with 100 million rather than four guys with 25 million and jackson is just so fucking rich by this point that no one was able to outbid him for the princely or should i say king of popley sum of 47.5 million dollars michael jackson was able to outbid the 46 million that mccartney and the other beetle representatives could gather together as their stake in beetledom they didn't win it's 1.5 million less and the rest is history though when questioned on it years later the head of columbia the the company not the country only reinforced the legitimacy and above-board nature by which Jackson bought the songs, as he stated, Paul had the resources to buy the songs, he simply chose not to. So maybe McCartney just thought $47.5 million wasn't worth it at the time? Maybe he can't afford it because of the massive bomb that was Give My Regards to Broad Street. maybe he's putting funds into Press to Play... You know, the Beatle money hadn't exactly been rolling in the same way as it had been, say, maybe 10 years prior. So it is understandable because maybe Paul just didn't have 100 million and maybe he knew that Jackson was always going to outbid him. So why prolong the inevitable? But yeah, without further ado, I'm going to do a, a more formal breakdown, a little trip down memory lane and see how up to this point the Beatles songbook was being handled and then I'll... I'll take us right through to the present day, hopefully. 1963. In March of that year, the Beatles' Please Please Me debuted, and Brian Epstein sought to find a publisher for the songs written by McCartney, Lennon, Harrison and Starr. The company that resulted from those conversations was called Northern Songs, that was majority owned by publisher Dick James, with Epstein, Lennon and McCartney, with the latter two songwriters owning 20% of the business apiece. 1965. Northern Songs became a public company, with Lennon and McCartney each owning a 15% stake, and Harrison and Starr splitting a small percentage each. Harrison would later go on to write It's Only a Northern Song, which was released in 68, about his dissatisfaction with the diminished cut he had received in such a deal. 1969. 
After relations between the Beatles and Dick James deteriorated, James sold his stake in Northern Songs to ATV Music, then owned by Lou Grade. And, despite Lennon and McCartney's attempts to offer a counter-bid, ATV gained control of the entire catalogue. Later that year, the duo sold their remaining shares back to ATV, leaving them without a stake in the publishing of their own songs, though they still both controlled their respective songwriter royalties. And we're going to fast forward to the early 80s. So around kind of 82, 83, McCartney would be offered in during talks to buy back Northern Songs and all of his back catalogue for the princely sum of $20 million. That is, Paul then went to Yoko and suggested that they each put up half of the money. However, Yoko, being Yoko, thought that this was too much and wanted to buy the lot for just $5 million. Grade, being the mogul that he was, saw this as almost an insult and, in a strange act of business spite, decided to uh, bundle up all of the rights to the Beatles catalogue in this sort of bumper package in the selling of his much larger company of ACC, of which ATV was a part of, thus making the person whoever buys ACC and the buyer of ATV would also be the person who would subsequently buy the Beatles catalogue. And it now made the rights even more expensive to acquire, as Grade was now no longer selling one without the other. If McCartney and co. wanted the Beatles rights, they'd have to buy a couple of companies along with them. As Howard Soons points out in his book, Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney, Macca probably should have just bit the bullet here again and just bought the lot. But instead he whined to the British newspaper The Times about his treatment and said, I'm not interested in buying a whole company. I just want my songs. Give me back my babies, Lou. Perhaps this seeming lack of professionalism on Paul's part and his reliance on his own sense of justice forced Lou Grade to finally flog it all to someone else and just get it over with. The chap who bought ACC and therefore ATV and therefore all of Northern Songs was an Australian businessman named Robert Holmes A. Court. 1985. ATV was then put up for sale again. Michael Jackson, now three or four years on since his sessions with McCartney and having been given his valuable advice, went along and purchased ATV's 4,000 song catalogue for $47.5 million, becoming the owner of approximately 250 Lennon-McCartney songs, as well as tracks by Bruce Springsteen, The Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, and many, many more. McCartney, to say the least, was not pleased. Note, through this deal, Jackson never actually got the rights to two of the songs, strangely enough. Uh, Two of the songs stayed with Robert Holmes A Court. The first was Lennon's Imagine, because Yoko gave Robert a tour of their home, which included the famous white Imagine piano, and she obviously secured the rights to that song for more sentimental reasons. The other one uh, that Robert Holmes A Court kept was Penny Lane. Why Penny Lane? Well, because he had a daughter named Penny, and he simply couldn't let the song go. 1987. This is the year of the infamous Nike lawsuit. Essentially, in a commercial to sell shoes, the Beatles' revolution was used, and not seconds after the ads were screened to millions across their homes in the States, Apple Records sued for $15 with their lawyers claiming that the Beatles had not given their authorization or permission. 
ever cheerful George, who was clearly horrified about the whole affair, said that it opened the door for the band's songs to be commercialised and to advertise everything from women's underwear to sausages. Now, whilst you might be inclined to assume that possibly it was Jackson himself who sold the song rights to Nike for the commercial, it turns out that Jackson's name wasn't even a part of the lawsuit. He wasn't even mentioned by name, despite being the publisher of those songs. Uh, the issue was specifically on the use of the original Beatles recording. However, uh, and I'm sure that this would particularly incense George, dun-dun-dun, shock of horror, twist of all twists, it turns out that it was none other than Yoko Ono herself, who, of course, still in you know holding significant shares in the Beatles record company, helped broker the original deal with Nike in the first place. She thought the spot might introduce a new generation to her late husband's music and signed off on it as if she had sole authority. Not entirely sure who deceived who here, but Nike stopped running the ads in early 88 and the case was settled out of court the next year on terms that have been kept secret ever since. 1995. Amid reported financial issues, Michael Jackson sold half of ATV to Sony for approximately $100 million, and together the two formed Sony ATV Music Publishing, with Jackson and Sony each owning 50% of the company. Late 90s. Reportedly, it was around this time that McCartney asked Jackson for a bonus based on the royalties he was getting as a songwriter, in the vein that, you know, McCartney's some sort of minimum wage employee at his appraisal and he's asking his boss for a raise you know as he details his songs were still making money making more money than ever so why shouldn't he be entitled to a bigger piece of the pie and it is here that apparently jackson refused on the spot to give him any extra money at all claiming that it was just business pal it was also around this time that the three surviving beatles finally began to publicly vent their frustrations stemming from Jackson cheapening the Beatles' image and legacy. 2006. With even further financial problems mounting, with a potential bankruptcy appearing imminent, Sony decided to negotiate a deal on Jackson's behalf to reduce loan payments on his debts and, as part of the negotiations, retained an option to buy half of Jackson's half of the company, which would give Sony 75% of the Beatles' catalogue, as well as all of the other folks. According to the New York Times, the catalogue was valued at the time of around $1 billion, and that if Jackson had gone bankrupt, these songs would have gone to auction. 2009. Following Jackson's sudden death at the age of 50, his share of the catalogue came under the control of his estate, run by Jackson's attorney, John Branker, and industry veteran, John McLean. Many assumed the rights would have been willed by Jackson back to Paul, you know, like, and I give all the Beatles catalogue back to Paul McCartney for free. You know, that, that, that's what people thought you know, Jackson would, would be saying in his final days. But no, alas, this was not the case. 2016. This was the year that Sony finally swept in and announced their intention to trigger their purchase option of Jackson's stake in the company. Uh, Sony officially agreed to buy out the Jackson Estates full half 
of the Sony ATV company for a total of $750 million, making Sony the sole owner of the Lennon-McCartney catalogue as well as Sony ATV's 750,000 other songs. 2018. McCartney filed a lawsuit citing the US Copyright Act of 1976, which allowed songwriters to retain the publisher's share of their copyrighted works released before 1978 after a 56-year period, comprised of two 28-year terms. For the earliest Beatles songs, that term would be up in 2018, with the later songs in the, in the catalogue eligible by 2026. This was all done confidentially, of course, and behind closed doors, and sadly we don't have anything in writing, but it is assumed that McCartney, uh, you know, through citing this 1976 Copyright Act, has been able to gain the publishing rights to a larger percentage of his songbook, uh, at least larger than he had before, and over the next seven years, the rest of the Beatles catalogue will revert back to him, in theory... However, that reversion was not 100% guaranteed, as pop giants Duran Duran lost a similar suit against Sony in December of 2018, so who knows. As of now, at the time of recording in 2019, Macca, or at least the Macca estate, is sat waiting until 2026, when the battle for these songs will inevitably start all over again. Both McCartney and Apple would individually be able to afford to buy all of these songs back, I am sure. And even if he couldn't, I am sure Beatles fans all over the world would be able to put some sort of GoFundMe or Patreon scheme together on his behalf. And there we have it, folks. I'm sorry that we don't have a grand ending to this narrative. It's all been done behind closed doors. Like I say, it's all gone a bit season eight of Game of Thrones on us there, hasn't it? Like, we've had this grand setup with these huge battles to wage with these epic titans, and then Wacko Jacko just goes off the deep end, ruins his estate financially, dies, and now Sony, fucking Sony, of all companies, are now involved with my Beatle product. Like, I know I was moaning on my Abbey Road episode with Nathan from the Deep Purple podcast about how all Beatle material isn't commercially available for all to you know, revel in, and I'm not saying that if Paul and Apple and all the other Beatle folk had all the rights, then things would all be hunky-dory and that we'd suddenly get the original Let It Be released on DVD or anything like that. But as cliche as it sounds, I just don't like the corporate world controlling this art and the creators not benefiting from it. You know, even though McCartney himself is seemingly rich enough and a corporation in his own right... It just seems wrong that anyone other than him is benefiting from the amazing songs that he himself wrote over 50 years ago. Recording the album. So, when the time actually came to writing up a summary for the Pipes of Peace recording process, it didn't take long before I swiftly realised that it really wasn't done in the conventional, structured way, if Macca ever has done so, um, up, up until this point. And to say that the recording sessions for this album were all over the place is really an understatement. Then the whole thing is exacerbated further by the fact that Pipes of Peace marks an era when the abundance of meticulously detailed notes about McCartney's everyday life seemingly just stopped being taken. This means we have a whole confusing mess with a load of confusing questions whilst having even less info to go off than usual. I mean, even the fantastic PaulMcCartneyProject.com, even their records seemingly run dry around this point. 
Don't panic though, it just means that we have to work a little harder at connecting all the dots. Like I said, this album was crafted in anything but a conventional way, and had it not been for the continued stalwart production and steadying of the rudder from George Martin, the album may have ended up being something that immediately would have just looked like leftovers from the last album, rather than being the fully crafted work that it somehow manages to end up being. Though, I always do have a little giggle to myself whenever I read this quote about what ideas Martin and McCartney originally had for the album. Martin says, Way back when we started Tug of War, my thoughts to Paul were, let's make it a slightly harder, a more funky album than perhaps you've done in the past. In fact, the Pipes of Peace album became more what we were looking for in Tug of War. Um, I'm not sure if that's true at all, or if they were ever aiming for that. Either way, we don't know all the ins and outs, but after this album, Paul never sought to work out with Martin again. Perhaps, and we'll be getting to, onto this later in other episodes, but maybe it was an effort to create more of a defined image uh, you know, as Solo Paul, a.k.a. without any Beatle staff hanging around. But it may also come down to, and we're going to get into this in a future episode as well, uh, the negative comments Martin may have made about Give My Regards to Broad Street, which Macca apparently took very personally. Either way, whilst Paul would go on to work with many great producers, producers who could even imitate Martin's sound very accurately, it is a shame that McCartney would never have the exact Martin sound that we get on this record ever again. Especially when you consider the fact that one of the main things cited about Tug of War being so good when compared to the Wings era was the fact that he paired with George Martin again. But hey, maybe their relationship just simply wasn't the same anymore. The main supposition about this album that I've always been interested in exploring is how, apparently, the majority of Pipes of Peace were simply just recorded during the Tug of War recording process, and that this album was just simply cobbled together from previously unused material, and that it's not a proper album in the conventional sense. Well, once again, nothing is that simple. And after following the dates, and with particular thanks and shout out to Luca Perese's fantastic book, The Paul McCartney Recording Sessions, go back and check out my interviews with Luca if you haven't already. But yeah, when you break down the dates and listen to all the demos and session recordings, you realise that the idea that this is just Tug of War Part 2 is maybe only half true at best. The following songs that were carried over from those Tug of War sessions, according to Luca Perese's book, were recorded in Air Studios in Montserrat during 1981, as the copyright for those songs confirmed the year and the fact that they were taped outside of the UK. Those songs were Sweetest Little Show, Average Person, Hey Hey Hey, Ode to a Koala Bear, which would end up as the B-side to the Pipes of Peace single, and Keep Under Cover. Out of all of these, though, the only tracks that I can confirm that received any particular attention during those sessions were Keep Undercover and Average Person, as they are the only ones with bootleg audio from 81 that I can find. And now, why don't we take a listen to both of those early versions? Love, I'm gonna pick you up in the morning I'm gonna take you off on a journey I don't know what I'm gonna do but I know what I've been going through without you by my side 
What good is butter if you haven't got bread? What good is art when it hurts your head? Might as well be in bed Keep undercover till the battle has ceased Keep out of trouble till the prisoners are So yeah, whilst the rest of the tracks that I mentioned have no publicly released audio to speak of, both Keep Undercover and Average Person were actually originally set to appear on Tug of War proper. In particular, Average Person was potentially being eyed up as the second song for the album before Take It Away, albeit a far catchier if very similar song, won the spot instead. Apart from Hey Hey, which was literally a one-shot studio jam session, the fact that Pops of Peace features such a variety of subsequent overdubs and re-recordings as well as the lengthy 1982 sessions as a whole, it's hard to work out how much of what was recorded on Montserrat made it on to the final album, if anything at all. Whilst we haven't heard all the tapes, I would argue that the Tug of War era leg of this album's production resulted in McCartney and George Martin more having it clear in their minds as to what they didn't want the album to be, as opposed to knowing exactly where it was going to go. Both Keep Undercover and Average Person would undergo almost complete and utter reworkings by the time they came to the 82 sessions, so it's clear that McCartney wasn't just simply taking stuff left over and putting it into Pubs of Peace. In fact, by the time he comes around to, re to reworking these songs, it's so drastic that it's basically the effort of crafting a whole new song all over again anyway. A final note about these earlier sessions in Montserrat is that these would have been recorded with Denny Lane still present in the mix, which means technically, and whilst this isn't reflected on the album cover itself at all, Denny Lane is still putting out music on a Paul McCartney record in 1983, even three years after the dissolution of Wings. McCartney had prepared a further two songs in his spare time that were essentially done and ready to pad out the album in the form of Say 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 and The Man, which were recorded with Michael Jackson in those sessions that took place in May 81, with overdubs in April 82. Uh, again, this is still whilst McCartney is knee-deep in Tug of War, so it's, it, it is easy to see where the blurring of the two occurs. Neither Say 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 or The Man are particularly complex in terms of their production or composition, and their instant marquee appeal meant that no matter what the next project was, they were always essentially going to latch onto it comfortably. But I'm pretty confident in assuming that McCartney 
was just essentially waiting for whatever the next album would be and to put his Michael Jackson collaborations on that album to make sure that he could ride that wave of popularity as quickly as possible. The final songs to be created for Pipes of Peace were recorded at Air Studios London and at Abbey Road in the October of 1982, only six months after the release of Tug of War and a full year before the release of what would become Pipes of Peace. This shows both Paul's excitement to carry on with his solo work and complete this new project and get all of these new songs out there, as well as the lengthy gestation period just to finish the damn thing. These final songs would be Pipes of Peace, The Other Me, So Bad, Tug of Peace, and Through Our Love. It was around this period, though, that I'm guessing the idea of twinning this album with Tug of War and having these two be these uh, sister albums that, that are meant to have this through narrative was beginning to take shape. I mean, yeah, maybe Mackett and Martin could see that the next album was always going to have a more lovey-dovey atmosphere compared to the first, based on the, the songs that they'd chosen from the pool, but the idea that this was always going to be called Pipes of Peace, or that that's how they ever referred to it over the summer whilst they were recording it, is a straight-up misnomer. The, the title track itself was one of the final tracks to be recorded for the album altogether, as was the experimental track that does literally blend the two albums together, the criminally underrated Tug of Peace. So we can only assume that this grand meta-narrative between Tug of War and Pops of Peace, this duality concept, only came up very late in the process. Paul knew he nearly had an album's worth of songs together, but needed a little something extra to finish it off. And in October 82, this concept essentially allowed the rest of the album to seemingly fall into place. So once again, Paul's innate genius just swoops down out of nowhere and basically just saves the album from complete catastrophe and does so whilst making it all look completely natural as if he had it planned out that way from the start. I mean, to take all of those songs from all of these sessions over the last two years and create something that resembles having a flow is... It's such an achievement, and it really shouldn't be downplayed, whether it was intentional or not. I mean, Pirates of Peace wasn't the Rishi Kesh writing session or anything, but Paul really wasn't slowing down his production in the songwriting department, and there was still a shit ton of songs in this period that we haven't even mentioned that we're going to have to cover in a future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts bonus episode. But we had I'll Give You a Ring that was demoed as early as 74, and Rain Clouds, which were both B-sides that could have been held back for Pipes of Peace potentially, you know. You have Stop, You Don't Know Where She Came From, Seems Like Old Times, which was played several times during these sessions, and of course there was We All Stand Together, which was worked on extensively during this period. And then there's the, the, the songs that were demoed first here that never made it onto the final album, um, or maybe even these were some of the songs that were turned away from Martin the first time during the Tug of War sessions, who knows. But we had Simple As That, which saw life both as a dark synthy number and as a cheesy anti-drug pop rocker anthem a short while later for some reason. Uh, there was It's Not On, Twice in a Lifetime, and Christian Bop. Okay, now that we've pieced together all of the semi-facts and half-truths, what are we left with? Well, it's pretty clear to me that Pipes of Peace, in terms of concept, in terms of track listing, in terms of its sound, somehow does not feel as completely thrown together as it probably should you know, it's compiled from various recording sessions that spanned over two years, over two albums. And yet, despite that, 
and I'll get onto this more in part two. Stick around. But somehow, again, drawing on that innate genius of Paul McCartney, as well as the fact that he is a veteran of the business, he manages to make the album feel so cohesive. Even if the concept of, you know, this being the softer album, Tug of War being the harsher album, is about as concrete as the concept of Sgt. Pepper, so there we go. The official accredited players on this album are seemingly just taken from the pool of musicians that Paul McCartney officially recognises as being as a part of the project. And I think most of those qualifications come down to whether you were part of the 81 sessions and the 82 sessions and whether McCartney still likes you or not. Uh, we have Paul McCartney on lead vocals, backing vocals, bass, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, piano, synthesizers, keyboards, drums, and probably a whole bunch of other instruments because, you know, he's Paul. We've got Linda McCartney on backing vocals. Wings is dead now, so she doesn't have to do anything too strenuous anymore, but she is there and contributing to the wonderful new harmonies that McCartney is working on at this time with, and we'll move on to Eric Stewart, who will be doing backing vocals, harmonies, uh, lead and rhythm guitar. Eric was a long-time friend of Paul's and founding member of rock group 10CC, and I'll be going into him in more detail on my Press to Play episode, so again, you have to stick around for that one. His past credits, though, in case you were interested, uh, aside from 10CC, include wonderfully obscure names like The Mindbenders and Ramesses or Hot Legs. We've got Michael Jackson on shared lead vocals on Say 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 and The Man. Already spent way too much time on that guy already. We've got Ringo Starr on drums. Ringo had appeared on Tug of War as well. And this album and this appearance really couldn't have come at a better time because his career as Beatle fame in general was flagging massively. His contract with RCA had been cancelled and no other labels were looking to sign him anytime soon. So any work is good work for Ringo at the moment. We've got Andy McKay on the saxophone. He was the first of many world-renowned session musicians that we're going to get into here. He was a composer and founding member of Roxy Music, being one of their longest-serving members as well. He worked a lot with Brian Eno by this point, and after working with Paul, he would go on to have a lot of success with the Pet Shop Boys. We've got Stanley Clark on the bass as well. Stanley is a primo jazz bassist and founder of Return to Forever, which is a very exciting jazz band. He was also with them when he won the Grammy for Best Jazz Performance by a group in 1977. I mean, if anyone could be the Beatles' bass player's bass player, it was going to be this guy. Uh, he'd worked with the likes of George Duke, Aretha Franklin and Quincy Jones. Then finally we had Steve Gadd on the drums, probably doing the lion's share of the drums there, eh, Ringo? Uh, Gadd, another tug-of-war veteran and world-famous session player, had worked with Eric Clapton, Ricky Lee Jones, Kate Bush and more. You'll probably know him as the drummer from Simon and Garfunkel's Live in Central Park performance or from Simon's own 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Uh, Gad had also previously had a brief stint in Stanley Clark's band Return to Forever as well. Um, there aren't actually all too many stories of the album being actually recorded at this time and and I'm mostly going to be relying on some secondary sources for this part here. But there was one little anecdote I did want to share with you. And that was taken from an interview with the tabla player, James Kippen, who appears on the Pipes of Peace song itself, on the title track. And when asked what particular memories he had, he said, Yes, I have some. I remember when I finished my part and I made my way to the studio's restaurant to have a bite to eat and relax a little bit. Paul was already there. 
And I recall that Air Studios had a video game machine, and guess what? Paul was having a go at the ultimate 80s video game, Space Invaders. We chatted a bit, and then he confessed, I'm addicted to this game, I just can't stop playing it. He told me that the night before our session, he had spent hours and hours, and had only given up on playing Invaders around 4am. We had a laugh talking about it, it was really lots of fun. Album Artwork The cover for Pipes of Peace departs from the last two solo McCartney releases in that it does not feature Paul's face, at least on the front of the sleeve. No, instead we are greeted with a menagerie of literal titular pipes strewn over a white backdrop. We have three cylindrical metal pipes, what looks to be a Native American pipe, uh, possibly part of a trombone, a hand holding some pan pipes, and if you look closely at the chair, you will also see a classic smoking pipe. So if you were there holding the album, as I am now in fact with my lovely copy that I bought for literally just four pounds whilst I was visiting my uncle and aunt one day. But yeah, just imagine this album's brand new and it's all the way back in 1983 and you pick up this album and you're probably thinking, what's up with this weird hand holding these pipes then? Well, when you open the album up and you look at the back and it opens up into one large double image, you'll see that there's no text on the back whatsoever. And the front and the back are this single wraparound image. It is revealing, of course, that it is Paul holding the particularly perplexing pan pipes of peace. Admittedly, still looking very young and stood in what can only be described as a casually kooky pose. He is next to one of the large cylindrical pipes, as well as another American Indian-style smoking pipe mounted on a tripod, as if it was a telescope, for reasons that I cannot possibly fathom, outside of them coming up with it on the day and thinking it was a cool idea. What wasn't a casually thought-of, half-baked, stoned idea, though, was the use of the chair in the front image. The chair, the central piece of the piece, is curiously not a pipe, but is instead surrounded by them. So, what's so special about this chair, then? Well, speaking of weed, Amsterdam's own Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, painted his own chair with a pipe on it, titled Chair and Pipe. And, in the album liner notes, you will find the original image that inspired the cover, which is so cool. I, I don't think I've ever seen an album cover that has done that, that has taken work from somewhere else and so directly referenced it and doffed their cap, as it were. Van Gogh's chair was painted in 1888 and featured, obviously, you guessed it, a pipe on a chair. This work was then taken by Clive Barker, not Hellraiser's Clive Barker. Uh, it was taken by British pop artist Clive Barker, who then made a chrome uh, reconstruction or recreation of Van Gogh's painting in sculpture form in 1966. And this is the chair you see on the final cover. Now, with this being released in 1966, I'm sure that in Swing in London, Paul had probably most definitely seen this piece and had kept it in mind for a future project. You know, maybe he just, he'd just he seen the chair again in a book and was just looking for things to do with pipes, and this all just fell together like the rest of the album. However, in a rather interesting note, if you look at the sculpture online, and I did this through a preview that I found of a book... The preview image of the original sculpture that you see shows that the floor beneath the chair actually reflects nothing. But when you pull out the inner sleeve of Pipes of Peace, um, which on one side has the picture of Van Gogh's original painting, as we mentioned, on the flip side, you see this silver chair on its own, the, the piece of artwork. 
but in that specific image the reflective floor underneath that uh, you know with its shiny tiles reflects the image on the bottom of the seat and that image is of the recognizably pixelized tetris like uh, red blue imagery and patterning that makes up the cover for tug of war basically it is just the cover of tug of war minus the mccartney photo and it's little easter eggs like this that absolutely make me squeak with delight because my golly, do I love me some cross-album continuity. Obviously, by now, Paul knows that this is an album that is going to have to refer back to Tug of War. So maybe the original artwork by Clive Barker had the red and the blue in it. And Paul used that for Tug of War. And maybe that's the connection here. I'm, I'm not sure what Paul is trying to say here or if any of it actually means anything. But, you know, these are supposedly twin albums. No idea why it's there. But fuck me, is it cool? So yeah, what are my actual thoughts on this? I am supposed to give my actual thoughts during this part, aren't I? Well, firstly, I do have to say that I am innately drawn to the simple plainness of this album cover, as well as the whole wonderfully on-the-nose concept behind the whole thing. It's not exactly amongst my favourite solo McCartney covers. Like, it's not Band on the Run or Ram or anything, but it has a cute premise that matches the title in the dorky way that I would expect from an album like Pipes of Peace. And it executes it effectively, as well as homaging the corny music within. I love the, that the photography was done once again by Linda, aka the only person who should ever be doing photography for, for Paul's work. And I appreciate that everything is achieved in shot, meaning that everything you see on the album cover is not made up of composite images, but if you go and look at the photo shoots themselves, you will see that they were all built in real life, in a real space, in 3D, with huge pipes of all sizes strewn all over the place, using forced perspective and angles and lighting to create the image that we see before us. Like, it's a testament to the fact that not only could Linda do some great fly-on-the-wall documentarian-style photography, but she could also set up these professional shoots as well that look fucking amazing. Also, just on a minor note, with Tug of War being very red and very blue, these, these striking colours, in the way that Pepper was very striking, it does make sense that this, like the White Album, does go for a simpler, plainer, less colourful image. Uh, again, twin albums, blah, blah, blah. Probably doesn't mean anything. All joking aside, I think it's a fine album cover, especially when we compare it to the next album cover that we'll be getting onto in our next main episode. Obviously, let me know your thoughts on this album cover by dropping me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter. Let me know what you think of all them pipes. Critical reception. And now we come on to the part of the show where I have to sit through hearing about what other people have to say without having the pleasure of actually having a guest on the show. And I've always felt very aware of the particularly peculiar placement of Pipes of Peace in Paul's discography. It really stands out to me, mostly due to the fact that I think that most people's view of this album is completely wrong. Or should I say, the vocal minority that I've heard, slash read, on the matter always seem to give this rather delightful McCartney release an extraordinarily hard time. And they force it to try and live up to standards that it really isn't trying to live up to. And I feel like that they're trying to will it into being a McCartney album that it was never trying to be or was never going to be. 
Spoiler alert, this is not how I feel at all. And whilst it's not my job to tell you that it's up there with Venus and Mars or anything, because it's not, but it definitely needs a bit of a re-evaluation. Not saying it needs, it needs a ram, completely revisionist history, but I'd like to see this nestled securely amongst the top 40% of Paul's work, certainly. I love a good underdog story, as you know, and I love being a contrarian even more, so I am definitely willing to die on this hill. Though, since we are at the end of what will be part one of this episode, I guess I can indulge myself a little bit. Um, but why does Pipes of Peace get shat on so regularly, especially when compared to Tug of War? As I mentioned on our Tug of War episode, go back and listen to that if you haven't already, the album, from my perspective, is nowhere near as consistent as something like Ram or Band on the Run, as much as the majority of the fan base would have you believe. You know, that album had so many advantages going for it as well. And even when you consider that <laughs> a lot of Pipes of Peace is taken from songs that George Martin considered not good enough for Tug of War, you know, it's such an uphill battle for this album to try and live up to the experience that Tug of War delivered. And this is a cycle that we see constantly in music, you know, the difficult second album, as it were. And Pipes of Peace very much is the difficult second album for Paul in this new solo mode. And being the second album, rarely does it ever, ever live up to the hype. And so therefore, Pipes of Peace is forever stained with this curse of both not sounding good in its own contemporary time and also seemingly not age very well. Fortunately for me on this show, on this podcast, I've never had to worry about what sounds good. I just listen to the music completely out of context. And I want to take this opportunity for us to gain a fresh and well-rounded perspective on this album. Of course, now this is the part of the show where I'm going to be reading out some other people's reviews for Pipes of Peace. Some are from historically contemporary sources, some are from, well, the majority are from recent online reviews. But hey, I work with what I can. This is just to get a broad spectrum on how other people might interpret the same things that we're about to be hearing with our album review in part two. It's just good to gain a wider context in that sense. But let's dive right in with... Park Pewterbar for Rolling Stone in January 1984. He says, Now, Paul McCartney is, after all, Paul McCartney. So these are not gaffes of some mere novice or an easy listening hack like Christopher Cross. It seems that in some fractured sense, he fully intends to be unexceptional. Think back to the modestly scaled hearth and home vignettes of the first several solo albums or of his heroic, determined submergence in the group identity of Wings. Underneath all of the elaborate arrangements and high-sheen production on Pipes of Peace, provided by George Martin, who also worked on Tug of War, is a humble man who retains affection, fascination even, with the lot of the common folk. This is manifested most blatantly in Average Person. Look at the average person, speak to the man in the streets, can you imagine the first one you meet? He thereupon imagines the lives of three such people, a truck driver, a waitress, and an ex-boxer. The obvious relish in which he ponders these lives is fairly heartwarming. He is, in the end, hard to dislike. He does make them smile, make them smile. But most of the time, he tries so hard to be an average man that he winds up making below-average music. Confusing slightness and simplicity, Pipes of Peace is, by and large, 
mediocre McCartney. And that reviewer was seemingly trying to piss me off on two fronts at the same time, as not only was he calling Pines of Peace mediocre, which just isn't true, but he also seems to like how Paul tries to connect with the common man on average person, which, spoiler alert, if you go on to part two, you will hear that that is the exact opposite of my view. I, I don't think Paul achieves that well at all. And on to what the enemy said, or the part of the enemy article I could read before a paywall. Um, I can't even find out what the name of the author for this was, but it reads, A dull, tired and empty collection of quasi-funk and gooey rock arrangements featuring the likes of Stanley Clark, Michael Jackson, Adam McKay and Ringo Starr, with McCartney cooing platitudinous sentiments on a set of lyrics seemingly made up on the spur of the moment. Yeah, not exactly the most glowing review there from the enemy, but maybe it gets more positive after you actually pay to read the article. Who knows? Next, Ron Harp, writing for Pitchfork.com, says, Some critics derided McCartney for aging gracelessly upon the release of the electro-tinged Pipes of Peace in 83, right as he turned 41. However, a good listen to the album today reveals some ways that it was ahead of its time. With the ballad so bad, McCartney confirmed his aforementioned smoky worship by paying homage to Robinson's Quiet Storm era, emulating the Motown great's cool falsetto to such perfection that Smokey himself had a bit of a rough time emulating it on his own cover from The Art of McCartney. Then there is Tug of Peace, an early primitive version of a mashup that brought together the title cuts of these underappreciated albums. The blend is clunky, but it foreshadows his electronic music work as the fireman and on Liverpool sound collage. Okay, we're getting a little bit better now with the critics here. This guy is definitely trying to win me over by citing how good Tug of Peace is. However, I'm not sure how much I agree with him in terms of his love for So Bad. But it is interesting how he brought up the idea of Paul McCartney being too old. Because I can remember those documentaries where it's Paul McCartney doing the Wings Over America tour, and even then they're asking him about him being too old. So surely now the issue should be compounded. You know, there should be even less rockers at his age doing what he's doing. And in all of the literature that I've read around this album and stuff I've read online, and the issue of his age just hasn't come up. So I'm not sure if this just isn't being reported now in hindsight, because it's not an issue that people really kind of recollect like it's something that you kind of had to live through at the time or maybe it just wasn't that significant aside from a vocal minority perhaps Stephen Thomas Earlwine writing for allmusic.com had this to say styled as a conspicuous companion piece to tug of war pipes of peace mirrors its 1982 cousin in many ways its title track holds up a mirror to its forefather and, if that weren't enough, Paul McCartney serves up the knowing tug of peace, an almost electro collage that twists the songs into McCartney 2 territory. It serves up two showcases for duets with the former Motown star, along with a cameo from fusion superstar Stanley Clark. And, more importantly, it is also produced by former Fab Four ringleader George Martin. Some of that production occurred during the sessions for Tug of War, which roughly half of the record was culled from outtakes of that album. But Pipes of Peace has a distinctly different feel from its predecessor, seeming fleet, adventurous and modern, almost as an 
accidental riposte to the consciously classical tug of war. Sometimes that whimsy slides right into silliness. Witness average person, a music hall showstopper that's inexplicably shoehorned into the middle of the second side. But that lightness allows McCartney to indulge in an instrumental funk collaboration with Clark on Hey Hey, a super slick bit of yacht pop with Jackson, the man, a bit of confession disguised as synthesised pop rock, the other me, and a galloping revision of Red Rose Speedway with Keep Undercover. If McCartney gets a little sticky on the ballad so bad, his melody saves him, and the album's other two hits have aged exceptionally well. Say 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 hits hard, sounding as funky as anything on Thriller, and Pipes of Peace achieves an earned grace. Perhaps Pipes of Peace doesn't have the gravitas of Tug of War, but it offers something equally valuable, a portrait of an impeccable craftsman at play. And I've really got to give it to Stephen there. I know I'm supposed to be non-biased on this part of the show, but he really sums up my thoughts on this album. And I definitely feel that he, as a critic, has decided to meet the album on its own terms and not, again, try and make it tug-of-war. So many of these reviews already are highlighting the fact that people can't get over tug-of-war when thinking of Pipes of Peace. One of the public members of allmusic.com, Martin Neppers, said... This is the pop album of McCartney, less majestic and profound than its predecessor, but full of fine pop tunes. Most notable is the title song, Say Say Say, The Other Me, Keep Undercover, and the great ballad Through Our Love. What also stands out is the tight production of George Martin. The only lesser songs are So Bad, The Voice of Paul is Much Too High, The Man, Too Cheesy, and Hey Hey. On the whole, it's a fun album to listen to, especially in the car. Well, I've never driven, so I guess I can't really address that. I love how that guy was like, the best songs on this album are, and then he basically listed like half the album. But yeah, moving on. Baron Sunday from RateYourMusic.com says, The most confusing thing about Pumps of Peace is that its predecessor, the similarly named Tug of War, was actually good. Really good. Yes, it did sound like a product of its time, but the melodies were inspired and the arrangements interesting. McCartney seemed to put more effort than usual, even in the lyrics, resulting in the touching eulogy of Here Today and the anti-war protests of the title track. Going back one more album, McCartney too had a knack for experimentation like few other of his works. The results were not always successful, but you could at least appreciate the effort. I don't know what happened, but in contrast, Pops of Peace turned out to be a complete disaster. Its feet are firmly set in the hellish territory of the 80s adult contemporary. The ballads are as saccharine as they come, the production unbearably glossy and artificial. I mean, McCartney's always been known for his silly love songs, but so bad reaches new heights. It has all the elements that people have criticised him for over the years, minus the excellent musical ideas that made those complaints null for us fans. And what's up with those out-of-place hair metal riffs on The Man, one of the two collaborations with Michael Jackson? Is the song supposed to rock? All I hear is a piece of totally forgettable pop. One could say that Tug of Peace is more experimental, but what the heck is the purpose of it? A mere mashup between two songs with no personality to itself. This is basically the definition of filler. It becomes even more pitiful when you realise that McCartney probably thought of it as an edgy, staying current type of move. Staying current type of move.
Now, that guy was slowly starting to win me over, where he was, you know, bigging up McCartney too, which will always win you over with me. But I honestly don't think that Pipes of Peace is too 80s. I think we're going to get onto that possibly with the next couple of albums on this podcast. And what is it with all of these critics pointing out Tug of Peace as one of these major songs of note to be discussed every time the album is brought up? It's not a bad song or anything, it's just I never would have expected to see it be brought up so often. I have no understanding of that at all. Uh, And I never even considered the idea that the guitar in The Man was hair metal, but okay. And I'm going to round this out with one last one in case I just spend the whole next hour reading negative reviews for Pipes of Peace when I actually quite like it. Uh, I'll end it with Tad Davis, also from RateYourMusic.com, with him saying, Another in a string of forgettable McCartney albums. There's simply not much to recommend on this to anyone. By 1983, with hard rock, heavy metal, new wave and R&B funk all vying for the airwaves on MTV, Paul's easy listening output seemed outdated and superfluous. He was now becoming a relic of a different era as young music buyers met his new releases with indifference. Worse yet, Paul's music was becoming flat out boring. Still, he managed to have a massive hit in Say Say Say, which turned out to be his last number one song in the US. Paul's Midas touch on singles was nearing an end. Pipes of Peace was apparently a huge hit in the UK, but was a dud here in the US. There's little for me to recommend on Pipes of Peace. Only for the most avid Mac fans should even consider getting into this. I consider Paul's album releases from 1982 to 1993 sort of a forgettable dark period for him. It wasn't until 1997's Flaming Pie that the brilliance of Paul resurfaced. And with the end of the critical reception, we are at the end of the episode, folks. Thank you all for listening to part one of my in-depth look at Pipes of Peace. Obviously, like I say, this is the part where the notes on McCartney's life start to get a bit sketchy. So hopefully you've enjoyed what I've been able to scavenge together there. Obviously, part two will be up next. Part two will be the album review of Pipes of Peace, where we'll be going through Pipes of Peace right the way to Through Our Love. If you want to get in contact with the show, obviously you know how to do that by now. Drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hit us up on the Twitter. That's doing really, really well. Now we're having a lot of fun with that at paulmccartneypod. Check us out on Facebook as well. Simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Same goes for YouTube. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Check out our WordPress blog as well which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com you can find all sorts of extra content there and finally of course we've had another patreon patron subscribe thank you for that tony big shout out to you obviously if you want to help support the show help keep the lights running help me expand the show possibly get some new equipment some new mics and stuff then don't think that there is someone else doing it yeah we probably have a, a lot less patreon supporters than you might guess and for as little as a dollar a month you know, a, you know, a pittance. You can help keep the show on the air and ad-free. There we are, folks. I'm sure Denny Lane is already playing us out as we speak. Thank you so much for your patience. I know this episode in particular has taken a while to come out as well, but it makes sense seeing as how Tug of War took a while to come out as well. You know, quote unquote twin albums again. Keep listening to Paul, folks. Peace and love. Peace and love. Play us out, Denny. <laughs> <laughs>